0: You're listening to Lozano-Smith's Podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln. I'm an attorney in Lozano-Smith's Monterey office. I'm the co-chair of the firm's Facilities and Business Practice Group and the manager of the firm's Client News Brief and broadcast programs. So, Lozano-Smith is a law firm representing public agencies in California. For today's conversation, I'm joined by the two chairs of our governance practice group, Mary Lerner and Ann Collins. Mary is a partner in our Fresno office and has over 20 years of experience representing California municipalities. She is presently the city attorney for Lemoore and Chowchilla, and she's an adjunct professor teaching ethics at the University of Phoenix, which is pretty cool. Ann is a partner in our Sacramento office. Ann is an accomplished litigator, having litigated eminent domain, construction, and Brown Act cases, among many others. She also regularly advises boards on governance and ethics issues. Together, they're a great team and a lot of fun for me to talk to. So welcome, ladies. Thank you, nice to be here. Thanks, Devin, for having us. So the Governance Practice Group tackles issues common to all public agencies in California governing board issues open meeting laws conflicts of interest and more we're recording this conversation now in november and in the coming weeks most of our clients will be holding their annual organizational meetings for many agencies this time of year that means there will be new folks joining their boards or city councils newly elected officials who may be navigating public office for the first time So this podcast is for those folks. We're going to discuss the top seven topics every new board member or council member should be aware of when joining the governing board of a California public agency. If you're a veteran board member, an employee of a public agency, or just a member of the public who cares about local government, well, then this podcast is for you too. So my first question, Mary, could you tell us a little bit about the annual organizational meeting, which I referred to earlier Most public agencies do this, and I know that in school districts, it's usually held in December. Can you just tell us what is usually on the agenda for such a meeting and what what that kind of meeting accomplishes?
1: Definitely. So uh, like school district boards, city councils try to hold their annual meeting swearing in of our city council members in December. However, that's going to be dependent upon the county election clerk's turnover um, and certification of the election results. So for city council, sometimes we have to wait until we swear them in. So there's, they'll be sworn in at a certain point on the agenda. Typically, if there's some outstanding items on an agenda, maybe something that's continued from a previous council meeting, the new member would be sworn in after that, but we do want them to become part of that decision-making process as soon as possible. So, To summarize, you're going to see a little bit of a delay because of the county elections clerk, especially in 2020, because that's a presidential election. So it takes a little bit longer to um, get everyone sworn in, get those results, and get
0: everyone started. Okay. Okay, great. So, Anne, how is this different for for school districts? And is it from what Mary just described?
2: Typically, Devin, for school districts and special districts, the... uh, the certification process and getting a new member sworn in is a little less stringent. And we see that new board members are elected in November and typically sworn in December at the uh, December
0: meeting. Okay, great. That sets the stage. And thank you both for that background. Now, without further ado, I'd like to get to the seven things every newly elected official should know. Drum roll, please. Okay. Um maybe not. And why don't you start us off? What's the first thing that new electeds should know?
2: Well, this first topic Devin actually is certainly one I think that we typically remind all board members of new or seasoned and that's to learn your role or remember your role as a board member. Okay, so what is that role? Well, I think it's important to remember that you're acting on behalf of the agency for the benefit and in the best interest of the public. That's either students, the city or county residents, your constituents. It's important to function as a team and communicate with a common vision. You don't have individual authority as a board member because the board is the governing authority. And we really just can't stress that enough. Um, Similarly, after a decision is made... The board member should support the decision of the board as a whole, even if their vote was in the minority. Okay, Which is difficult, I have to add, for a
0: lot of board members and council members. Yeah, especially when you have a strongly held views on a subject. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, Mary, do you have anything to add? Well, I just want to restress what
1: Anne was saying about the the role of these board members and council members. They mm-hmm. leave the role of doers and they become decision makers. So there's going to be limitations on them getting into the trenches with the day-to-day activities of the agency, whether it's the city, the school district, our special districts. Mm -hmm. And this is really difficult for some of our electeds because they run for election on this idea or proposition that they're going to help make changes, right? And then these are the specific changes, whether it's an increase in stop signs. So then we have electeds that feel like they should go directly to the planning director or to public works and give direction. But if you have that council manager form of government, for example, you have a manager an administrator for a reason. And what we're seeing is these members overstepping their bounds and then getting wrapped up in litigation. And not only is the agency being sued, in these instances, but also the individual members. Um, and remember, your peace of mind has value, your time has value, and there's so many other things you could be doing in your role besides defending a lawsuit.
0: Mm. Okay. So, for a new board member, where would all this be set out? You know, is any of it written down? Where do you go? Mary? Well, typically, for at least for council members, start with the municipal
1: code. Mm-hmm. That's gonna have your form of government there um, or your charter but also consider bylaws um, for school districts, special districts, your standards, guidelines of a public agency regarding the role of board members. And then what we see with a lot of council members and special districts especially is there's gonna be a council code of conduct. Mm -hmm. And that allows for your co-members to go ahead and hold you accountable should you step out of those roles long before we end up in litigation
2: and it's it's kind of it's it can sometimes be surprising when we go to do a training um with a board and they aren't aware of their bylaws or their standards or their code of conduct and mm-hmm. the excitement of the election is over and now the reality sets in that there actually is a code of conduct or there are bylaws and standards to follow and so i think coming back to that and just remembering your role as a board member is a really important thing to come back to.
0: That's great, okay. Okay, good. So Anne, if understanding what's the role is the very first thing new governing board members should know, um, what's the second thing?
2: Well, I'd say it's beginning to understand and really comprehend the Brown Act
0: and the rules surrounding open meetings. Okay, so why don't you tell us some basics about the Brown Act? What is it and what are some of the first things we ought to know about it?
2: Well, the Brown Act is the open meeting laws. They uh, basically set forth that actions and deliberations of the governing board must be taken in open session. So all of the meetings are conducted in open session or in public unless a closed session exception is permitted under the law. Uh, the definition of what a meeting is is a, is pretty broad. Mm-hmm. So it's any congregation of a majority of the members of the board when discussing agency business, even if there is no collective concurrence among the
0: board members. Okay. So, what if a board member runs into other board members out in the community? Is that a meeting? Well, there are exceptions to that broad definition of
2: a meeting. So, for example, individual contact, social gatherings, conferences, other community or local agency meetings would be exceptions to. The definition of a meeting and and that would be okay, but it's important to remember and be mindful of the public perception, even at those conferences or social gatherings. If the, if a majority of the board members are sitting, let's say at the same table at a wedding reception, mm-hmm. um, is it going to be perceived that they are discussing agency business? And again, the definition of what falls under that definition is is quite broad. So being mindful of of the public's perception
0: is really important. Okay. Okay. So given all that, Mary, how does the Brown Act affect how board members can communicate with each other or staff outside of a board meeting?
1: So this is a really important question and something we deal with on – almost a daily basis. Mm -hmm. We want council members and board members to be careful of inadvertent violations of the Brown Act by conducting what we call a serial meeting. And that's a series of communications with each other, which involves less than a quorum, but when taken as a whole, will ultimately involve a majority of those members. So an example would be if you were to get an email from the board president or city manager um, to the council or board, and then you hit reply all with an answer or a question. We want to avoid hitting reply all. Typically what we'll do is we'll put at the very bottom of a communication, whether it's text or email, Remember not to hit reply all um, because it can become habit for people, but at the same time, you could be violating the Brown Act. Also, it's important to remember that even on social media, we could have an inadvertent meeting that's improper. So if you are hitting like, that's actually speech. So we just need to be careful of those communications, not hitting reply all, and then go to your board president or go to your city manager or administrator with your direct questions.
0: Interesting. All right. So that's great advice. Thank you. Now, I think that brings us to our third thing that we hope that board members know. Um, what is it, Anne? Well, this is a
2: really great one for new board members, Devin, and it's really the nuts and bolts of board meetings. I mean, we always tell clients a board meeting is a meeting in public, not a public meeting in front of the
0: board. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by that?
2: Well, the purpose of these open meetings is to conduct agency business in an open and transparent way. And while there are opportunities for the public to comment on matters, the board must maintain focus and control over the proceedings or else they will never get through everything on their
0: agenda. Right. Okay. So Mary, can you tell us a little bit about that process? How is the agenda for a meeting prepared? Who runs the meeting, et cetera? So typically um, with with city councils, it's going to be your clerk
1: that prepares the agenda with input from your board president, your city manager, administrator. And also there can be requests from the city council or the board for agenda items if it's in line with your board policies, your city council policies, and your um, customs And then once the item is on an agenda at the meeting, it's going to be your board president, your city administrator, manager that actually runs the meeting. So they may introduce the staff member who's going to give the staff report. Once the staff report is done, the board or council then has their opportunity to ask questions, to make comments. But when that process is done, you want to go out to the public because, again, just reiterating what Anne said, this is, this is a meeting of the board, but we're still going to have some public input into it. Generally, that's a timed input Keep in mind, however, that if you let one person go over on their, let's say, for example, three minutes of comment time, you're going to need to give the same amount of time to everybody else. Mm. Once the public's done commenting, it would go back to the board or council. They can then ask any further clarifying questions, request more information. And then typically, after that deliberation and advocacy by the board, they'll take their vote.
0: Great. Okay. Well, can I ask you both to share some tips about how a board member, particularly a new board member, ought to approach participation in a meeting. Anne, could you go first? Sure.
2: I think one thing that's important to remember is that you don't have to comment on every item uh, on mm-hmm. the agenda. Usually agendas are, are, are pretty full. There's a lot of business that needs to take place, and depending on your your district or your agency, you may have one or two meetings a month, and there's a lot of stuff that needs to to get uh, discussed. So you don't have to comment on every item. On the other hand, you do need to remain engaged in the meeting and not appear to be disinterested or bored. Again, consider the length and the time of the meeting and the efficiency of getting through your agenda and really staying focused on the business at
0: hand. That's great. Mary?
2: And just highlighting what, yeah, just highlighting what
1: Anne was saying about it not seeming disinterested. Remember that public perception is really important. I have some council members that maybe just look at their phones during the meeting. Well, if the public is watching that, even though you may be looking at your agenda as a board member or council member on your device, The public perception may be, well, they're not paying attention to what's going on here in the media. Then maybe they're texting or maybe they're on social media. I do want to add one follow-up point about not commenting on every item on the agenda. I just want to caution people. We see this ramp up in an election year because what we see are board members and council members that try to start campaigning from Mm -hmm. the dais and feel that they need to say more on it to help their... Election campaign. So, just I want council members and board members just to be aware um, not to campaign from the dais, just as a side note.
0: Okay. Great. Those are great tips. Okay. And I think that tees us up for our fourth tip for new board members. Um, and what is it? Well, Devin, it's another set of laws and it's the Public Records Act. Mm-hmm. So, how does the Public Records Act apply to board member communications?
2: Well, the Public Records Act defines the term public records, again, very broadly, and it includes any writing containing information related to the conduct of a public's business. So regardless of the physical form, whether it's written, uh, text messaging, videos, audio, anything that is prepared, owned, used, or retained by the agency related to the public's business is going to be a public record.
0: Hmm. Okay. So Mary, what about personal devices or personal accounts? We know that you know a lot of our board members already have existing accounts that they might have used as part of the communication around their campaign. If I just got elected to a city council do I need to be worried about continuing to use my personal Gmail account, for instance? Well, you should, be, you should be
1: aware that there is a case out there, the City of San Jose case from March of 2017, mm-hmm. that in essence states that when a city employee uses a personal account to communicate about the conduct of public business, the writings could be subject to disclosure under the PRA. Now, when I give trainings on this specific topic... I always tell the attendees, if I want to look at your personal phone because we need to respond to a PRA request, am I going to say, give me your phone right now? I need to look at it if it's your personal device. No, I'm not. I would need a subpoena for that. And I'm not going to jump in the canal after it if you throw it in there trying (laughs) to avoid me getting to look at it. But what I will do is hand you an affidavit and under penalty of perjury, I'll ask you to search your own devices so that then if there was something you were hiding and it's later found out, you're the one that's going to be responsible and not the public agencies that we represent.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: And I think, and just in case we glossed over this for any new board members, the the issue with the Public Records Act is that anything that's a public record is accessible and uh, to the members of the public. So uh, typically, members of the public will ask for documents. They'll ask for these records. And if it's a public record, unless there's an exception that applies, and there are several, then you have to provide that to the member of the public. And so with the City of San Jose case and what Mary was describing, I think that for new board members, remembering that things that are contained on your personal device emails or text messages could be subject to disclosure under the act.
1: Absolutely. So I would recommend that if you're a council member or board member, use a separate device or phone or
0: email account for agency business. Great. Okay. Got it. Thank you. So we're ready for our fifth topic. Mary, I'm going to have you do it. What is it? <laughs> Something
1: we all know and love. You need to know the rules about conflicts of interest. Okay. Okay. So that's a big topic. Where do we start? So the basic rule is found in the Political Reform Act as codified in the Government Code, and that in essence states that a public official may not take part in a governmental decision if it is reasonably foreseeable that that decision will have a material financial effect on one or more of the official's economic interests or on those of his or her immediate family. And that's important to remember. Mm -hmm. And some examples of those economic interests could include investments or positions in business entities, interest in real property,
0: sources of income, sources of gifts, and personal finances. Okay. And what about... The Form 700. So earlier this year, I recorded a podcast with Tom Gauthier, one of our partners, about the Form 700. But it's a document that every board member needs to be familiar with. So can you just briefly remind listeners what it is?
1: Absolutely. So the Form 700, it's a statement of economic interests. Every elected official and public employee who makes or influences government decisions is required to file a Form 700. And it's actually... For transparency, mm. we want the public needs to know um, what conflicts of interests maybe these members have, and so every elected official will file one once elected and then once a year following that.
0: Right, right, okay, great. And for more on that, thank you. But for more on that, I recommend Tom's podcast on how to fill out your Form Seven Hundred. So, Mary, what about gifts? What's the basic rule there?
1: Well, so gifts important to talk about right now as we approach the holidays. Right. So the gift limit, it restricts the total amount of gifts that officials and candidates may receive from a single source during a calendar year. Currently, that is set at $500 annually. Just keep in mind that this amount is adjusted for inflation every odd numbered year. So you're going to want to check again to see if that limit has increased in 2021.
0: Okay, great. We're not quite done with conflicts of interest, though. and. Can you tell us a little bit about Government Code Section 1090, which governs the making of contracts by public officials?
2: Sure, Devin. Uh, Government Code 1090 conflict of interest is specific to contracts. It prevents public officials from having a financial interest in a contract made in his or her official capacity. Now, it only applies if there is a contract. So it's not applicable to adopting regulations, investigations, reports, things like that. But... It should be noted that grants, expense reimbursements, donations, those types of uh, agreements may qualify under a Government Code 1090 conflict of interest. And under this section, a contract cannot be made, period, even if the member has disqualified themselves from the decision to adopt the contract. So it's important – so let me give you an example. Uh, If Mary is a a board member – And her husband's landscape company wants to enter into a contract, let's say, for landscaping work, that would be a 1090 conflict because she would have a financial interest in that landscaping contract. And Mm -hmm. even if she excluded herself or excused herself or disqualified herself, the agency or the district would not be able to still enter into that contract with Mary's husband. Okay, great.
1: And if I could add just one final concept Just, it's important for our council members and board members to know that this government code 1090, it's broadly construed and strictly enforced. And it's actually one of the harshest conflict of interest laws in the nation. Mm -hmm. And you could be subject to fines, imprisonment, and disqualification um, from serving. Yeah,
0: that's important. Thank you. Okay. One more thing before we leave this complex topic of conflicts of interest. Mary, can you just tell us a little bit about the rules with respect to campaign contributions and the use of public resources? Right. So one key rule is that you cannot
1: use public funds and resources such as staff or the copy machine for your campaign. It's unlawful. And the idea behind that is we don't want incumbents to have an unfair advantage aside from the fact that it's an improper use of Public funds. And so while you may think, oh, I'm just going to ask the city clerk to make me five copies of my flyer real quick because I didn't have time to stop and get copies made, that's actually prohibited. And again, we don't want to have an unfair advantage given to those incumbents.
0: Okay, great. Okay, now we're ready. It's time for topic number six. And what's that?
2: Well, Devin, it's a lawyer's favorite topic. Liability. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> when is a board member potentially liable for their actions while serving on the board? And this is a question that we get all the time because uh, especially if we have a uh, one member who may or may not disagree with actions of the others and starting to go rogue, and it's it's something that comes up more often than not.
0: Okay. And so how do you answer
2: that question? When is a board member liable for their actions? Well, board member liability is best described as an umbrella. There's an umbrella that covers you. You will not be liable if you're acting within the scope of the agency responsibilities. Actually, Michelle Cannon, one of our partners, did a video about this exact topic on our video newsroom, and so she goes into a little bit more detail there, but generally speaking, this is, you're going to have that protection again under the umbrella if you're acting within the scope of your responsibilities. Now, if you start to go outside of those responsibilities and you act in a willful, criminal, reckless, or grossly negligent way, then you're not going to be covered. The umbrella will go away and you may be liable for those actions. That's great. Okay, Mary, anything to
1: add there? No, I think Anne did a good job of covering that just know, again, that your peace of mind has value and your time has value and, and you're on the board or council for a reason. You're, you chose that position. And so the last thing we want to see is you ending up having to be liable. Yeah, for sure. Okay.
0: Um, ready for the last one. Um, Mary, what's the seventh thing a newly elected public official should know?
1: Well, I would say the seventh thing that a newly elected public official should know is how to interact with the community as a board member or a council member.
0: Well, and that's interesting because in a way that ties together everything what we've been talking about. So tell me more about what you, th- what you mean. So things that you say,
1: it may be considered the opinion of the entire agency. And I know Anne touched on this earlier in this podcast, even when they're not. So clarifying when you're providing your own opinion about matters is important. So it's the I messaging before a council or board vote versus the we messaging after a vote. And I think that that we messaging can be a little difficult for some when they are adamantly against such a hot topic like marijuana or low-income housing, or maybe they're for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to get on board with that we message can be a difficult concept for some.
0: For sure. Yeah. What about interacting with the media, Ann? How should a board member go about doing that?
2: Well, as a best practice... Uh, the media should be directed to go to a certain individual, somebody who's been designated. So maybe it's the board president, the mayor, the city administrator or manager, but some single source uh, who's going to act as the mouthpiece, if you will, for the agency. This is really especially true on hot topics in the community, like Mary was discussing. We have issues surrounding gun control and marijuana. So it's really important that again, if we have members that may have a diverse uh, range of opinions on a topic, that the agency again has a single voice and in sing- a single way of communicating that to the media. Again. Not a bad idea to perhaps consult with your legal counsel on specific issues. Um, and again, redirecting communications to that, that may come in on a personal device or your personal email, redirecting those back to the designated individual and not responding from a personal account or from your
0: personal phone. And what about social media?
2: Yeah, so on that same vein, you know, again, a lot of the common thread of what we're talking about today is that you are a you are an individual person with a life outside of your agency uh role, but when you do step into that agency role, you have to put that hat on. And so for social media, the same general advice you have to be very careful about what you are responding to and what you are commenting on, even if it's a heart on Instagram or a thumbs up on Facebook. Mm. But most agencies have policies regarding content and use of social media. So clarify when it's your own opinion. Be careful not to offer your own personal opinions on matters before they've been presented to the board. And really. Stay away from some of those hot topics that could get you, you know, into some kind of hot water with not only your other board members, but with your
0: constituents. Great. Okay. That's great advice. Mary, any thoughts about confidentiality? What should a board member not share with the public? Well,
1: this ties in with what Anne was just talking about. Um, with the media and with the public in general, remember that confidential information must remain confidential. This includes information that you obtain or discuss in a closed session meeting as well. So what Anne was saying about consulting with your legal counsel and how that's important, I highly recommend that you do that so that you aren't inadvertently disclosing something that was in closed session that, that you didn't have the intent to disclose it, but it's just inadvertent. Again, council members should also not disclose to community members, including developers, how they're going to vote before a public hearing, because the idea behind a public hearing is you're taking testimony. So to have your mind made up before you take that testimony, it defeats the purpose of the public hearing. And I've actually had council members do this. Mm. So it's just having those reminders in place. And
0: again, consult with your legal counsel. That's great. Okay. So now we've covered a lot of ground because each of these topics could be a podcast in itself. In a minute, I'm going to ask you both to run down with me these seven tips one more time. But first, um, Mary, where do you suggest new board members or council members go for training on all of these topics?
1: Well, our firm has a lot of resources on all of these topics. We do trainings And we suggest these new trainings for new board members or even as a refresher for existing board members and council members. Mm -hmm. So maybe after the holiday break would be a good time for these refreshers or maybe after a summer break. These refreshers are always important. I recommend refreshers and training such as the ethics training under AB1234, the harassment training, which is now required for everybody. So for our new board members and our council members, this becomes important. We also will provide our Brown Act handbooks, along with our new board member toolkits, to our new board and council members, no matter if they
0: were elected or appointed in the case of a vacancy. That's great. And for more information on any of that, um, I suggest that listeners contact our client services team and they can help with all the things that Mary just described. But one more thing, Ian, we've been talking about new board members here, but we also often provide governance training to the board as a whole, particularly where the board is struggling to work together. Could you just talk about that for a minute?
2: Sure, Devin. We we get asked quite often to come in to existing boards to provide governance training. Sometimes it's as a result of a hot topic in the community or some type of negative interaction with the public. But it's, you know, to have regular board trainings is, is a great idea, regardless of the seniority or the tenure of your, of your members. Again, if if the board has struggled in the past. Then we can help get the board back on track to get on the same page again, remembering their roles and the procedures of the board or council. And the you know, we recommend, especially for those on city council, to um, have such a training after long breaks from the meetings in the summer or after the holidays as just a refresher to get again everyone on the same page. Also, that makes the council members or the board members not feel like they're doing the training because something bad happened Mm. or they did something wrong or that someone's in trouble. It's maybe just more of a regular uh, scheduled training.
0: A refresher. Yeah. Okay, great. That's really helpful. So let's close this out by running through once more the seven things every newly elected local official should know. Mary, number one. Learn your role as a board member. That's going to be key for you. Okay, um, and number two? Understand open
2: meetings and the Brown Act.
0: Great. Um, Mary, number three?
2: Remember that a board meeting
1: is a meeting in public, not a public meeting in front of the board or council. Got it.
0: Okay,
2: and number four? Understand and know what a public record is
0: and that it can be disclosed. Right. Okay. Mary, what's number five? Know those rules about conflicts of interest. Stay out of trouble. Yeah, For sure. Okay. And number six.
2: Well, for staying out of trouble, learn what you can be liable for and what you're not liable for while serving on the board. Super. Last one, Mary, number seven.
1: Learn how to interact with the community as a board member and as a council member.
0: Right. That's a lot to know. And, you know, for a moment, I just want to reflect on it's a big job serving as a representative of the public and local government, And as attorneys, we see what that's like day in, day out. When you go to council meetings or board meetings, it's a tough job. And we appreciate those who volunteer to serve and work in local democracy. It's so crucial. So I want to thank you both for your insights. This has been really fun. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. Thanks, Devin. All right. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lizana Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks everybody. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.